Welcome to The 12th Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 180 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, Mercantile Library hosts authors, speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events, including this podcast. We are a working library with more than 75,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillelibrary.com. We always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the reading room on the 12th story of the Mercantile Library building are Becky Call, attorney at Conan Patton and a regular library patron. Hello. Grace Dobush, freelance journalist and organizer of the Crafty Supermarket. She shook her head. Hi, what's up? <laughs> <laughs> and Mike O'Neill, attorney and frequent visitor of the library. Hi, good afternoon. Um, and me, I'm Jason Barron, and I run um, Cincinnati's Bike Share Program, Red Bike. Today we'll be discussing Girl on, a Tra- on the Train by Paula Hawkins. And warning, there will be spoilers today. So proceed at your own discretion um, and find out what happens. So we'll get started. Um, so did everybody enjoy The Girl on the Train? Uh, I, I enjoyed the book quite a bit. Um, I don't know how you guys felt about it, but I thought it moved very well. I thought the writing was excellent. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I always am a sucker for a book that jumps around from different points of views and different times. Yeah, I think uh, I, I liked the narrative jumping that she was doing, although I, I do admit I was reading it on my Kindle, and there were times when I couldn't remember if I couldn't keep track of the timing, so I had to page back and forth quite a bit, at, at the beginning at least, mm-hmm. before the timelines kind of converged because I couldn't quite keep track of it. At the beginning, I made a couple mistakes. I think with, um, I think it was with Emma, when, no, it was Anna. When Anna would jump in there, they had her timeline completely off by mm. like a month or two mm-hmm. initially, and I got really confused. But uh, you know, eventually you get the hang of it, and you really kind of look at the start to see exactly where they are and who's talking before you start reading the next passage. Yeah, I mean, I did, I did enjoy it. Um, I, I felt like it dragged a little bit in some spots, but um, I enjoy a good psychological thriller. Absolutely, and I'll tell you the timeline issues that you had are not necessarily exclusive to the Kindle, but I had some trouble with that when I read it um, in hard copy the first time. So I always like to jump back and forth around the book anyways. I'll reread old sections and check out the dates two or three times, even when I know where they're at anyways. Mm-hmm. Mm. Maybe that's nerdy. I don't know. No, it's helpful to get reoriented. You're so. thorough. You were prepared it's very for pulp the exam. Fiction-y. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Yes. There you go. I always enjoy a book where the lead character is flawed, and uh, in the Girl on the Train, Rachel is definitely a flawed character, right? She's got a lot of her own personal problems and baggage that she brings to this, and in many ways, that kind of like is the driver of the whole story. Is her own personal kind of trouble. So then draw the distinction, does that make you like the story or does that give you sympathy for the character? Because I think in some situations it, it draws you into the story and makes the story more appealing without necessarily making for an appealing character. And in my opinion, Rachel is definitely a flawed heroine without a lot of redeeming qualities. <laughs> and I didn't necessarily have a lot of sympathy for her even when there were times when I was kind of rooting for her, like, get it together, come on. Well, I mean, she's kind of, I mean, in a way she's kind of like a Don Draper Except she does have a job, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, and Don Draper at his lowest points, right? Not exactly. not cool, Don yeah, Draper no, when he's on no, his like game. Lowest points, Don mm-hmm. Draper, where he's trying to get his ex back. He's drinking too much. He's showing up weird to work. Like that's basically this. He's character. picking up a random girl at the bar to yeah. try to fix her, or a waitress exactly. in the last season. Yeah, there you go. No underlying competence, though. 
I mean, I don't, yeah, there's no correct. <laughs> Rachel does yeah, not have true. the confidence. So I, I, I liked Rachel a lot, and I, I think one of the reasons was that really? she was oh, I absolutely did. She was so real to me. Like, you know, everybody's got that alcoholic friend, or maybe just me. But like, like I felt like it, it, it was an interesting character in that rarely. And this gets back to what I previously said that I like a flawed character, but I feel like it's so easy to have a character that's just like Superman or that is Don Draper. Because even Don Draper, flawed though he is, is never really off his game. Right. At his lowest point, he's still the coolest guy in the room. He's still picking up the mm -hmm. hottest lady at the bar at his lowest. And with Rachel, you know, she gained some weight. She kind of lost her mind when she lost her husband. Like, and to me, there was something really redeeming about the fact that even though she couldn't quite pull it together, she kind of, I don't know, I just, I just was, was she, drawn to her. She couldn't keep it together, but she was trying really hard to act like she had it together. And that's why she's on the train every single day, right? And I liked that it just made her a very real character. Maybe not relatable per se, but it felt very real to me. And I think a lot of um, characters in women's fiction tend to be hollow. So you can fill them up with whatever your own personality is. And she wasn't that way at all. And I think that speaks to the author's skill. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I would agree. The other thing is I appreciated that the author, you know, having you know, known some people who were alcoholics, didn't go with like that standard, like, oh, she's getting it together, you know, vignette. Of oh she went for a jog she hasn't been drinking for this amount of time you know things are starting to turn around for her every time she takes a step forward you know she goes and she drinks three bottles of Chardonnay and then she forgets what happens and she starts all over again and makes it worse. Well, and narratively it was interesting how she'd do that too because the author would like keep you with her for a bit mm -hmm. and then you'd wake up and she'd be like oh what happened right. yeah. um, and I thought it was yeah again. I thought it was very neat how it's also kind of told. You know, it was often told as almost like somebody writing in a journal, right? It was like, this is what happened earlier today, or this mm -hmm. is what happened before, yeah. which yeah, I thought was kind of an interesting way to do that. Not unlike Bridget Jones's diary, <coughs> actually, except that it's not really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Depends how you look at it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I also, I, one of the things I loved about this book was how it, as, as a reader, right, it's a page turner, it's a thriller, it's a mystery. Um, but also the way it dealt with, the way it used alcoholism and your own memory to, um, to play with time and space and to play with what the facts were mm -hmm. to where you kind of start out and you're like, oh, this is the set of facts. And then by the end of the book, you learn that that set of facts is absolutely the opposite of it. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of see the Easter eggs that were left all along the way right. to, to reveal that. You know, I think it's interesting, the, the idea of, like, the unreliable narrator or the exactly. unreliable witness. Mm -hmm. I mean, you guys are attorneys. Like, that's something you can, like, play with kind of in that's right. determining facts of something. Well, and, the, and kind of the question about, like, what's the difference between your memory and what's the difference between the, the truth of the situation? Is your memory an accurate reflection of the truth of the situation? And in so many ways in this book, the memories were shifting into ways that did not reflect the truth, whether it was one witness's perception of the event versus another witness's perception of the event. Like I'm thinking about um, one of the many times when Rachel was leaving the Hipwell's flat and Anna would see her outside. And Anna's perception of what was going on or even the expression that Rachel was showing was completely different than what was going on in Rachel's own mind and the, and the expression and the feelings that she was projecting on her own. So that like, contrast between how two characters are perceiving the same event versus then this alcoholism piece of it where one character is having these bizarre and fragmented mm -hmm. perceptions of a single event herself. Well, and one of the things that I think the author does really 
interestingly in that is that it's not just do I remember the facts, but do I, do I remember the facts and what I'm told about the facts, do those converge? And so it's very interesting how she, and she does this early, and you don't really learn it till late when you find out that ultimately her ex-husband was kind of a jerk, was a huge jerk, that she um, remembers both, this is what I remember about last night when I was drinking, but also this is how I feel about the time I mm -hmm. don't remember. And those don't always line up with what she hears about what she did, right? And so that ultimately becomes really important because she starts to question, I think, herself whether or not she did something. Did I get so drunk that I killed a woman or that I did this? And she'd been told by her ex so often, you were mean last night. You were a jerk. You know, ultimately, it gets down to you swung a golf club at me mm -hmm. where then you find out in the end she has like this kind of epiphany where it's like, no, I was remembering being scared, not being angry. That doesn't line up. Do and that ends up be playing a kind of major role in the final revelation. Do you guys think that she did any of that stuff in terms of the swinging of the golf club? Oh, I, I think it's revealed that she did it, yeah. What about, though, I guess, what about when she took the baby down by the railroad tracks? How bizarre. I mean, that's where I kind of swing back the other way. Is like, are we sure? I mean, I think you're right. I think it is revealed definitively it isn't the golf club. Yeah. But if you're going to take a newborn baby and then just drunkenly kind of wander down by some railroad tracks of your ex-husband and his new wife, like, there's nothing off the table. That was like, a... <laughs> when again, she... didn't get a good explanation for she, why that happened. She questions her own motives of it because mm -hmm. she remembers it one way, but she only kind of remembers it, and she's kind of like, surely I wasn't going to do anything crazy, right? Yeah. But she doesn't fully know, and part of that sure. is because she's been told over and over and over again that when she's drunk, she's mean, and I think my guess, at least, and I'm a sympathizer of Rachel, is that when she's drunk, she's needy or sad and not mean. But yet her yeah. husband, who right. was, I think, mean, quite frankly, sick of her bullshit, started to create his own narrative to compensate exactly. for it. Because her ex-husband, who ends up being the murderer, mm -hmm. is a classic abuser. I mean, even though she's, Rachel is so obsessed with him and is trying to get him back the entire time, um, that trying to convince Rachel that she doesn't know what she's talking about or that she's crazy. Um, it's just like classic abuse moves, um, like the classic movie Gaslight. That's Have exactly what I was going to bring exactly. up. Exactly. Yes. Like this that. movie, this classic film where this man convinces his wife that she's going crazy because he keeps turning the gaslight in their apartment down every day. So it gets dimmer and dimmer. And she's like, is it dark in here? And he's like, no, you're crazy. And he's manipulating so many other parts of her life. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what was going on here. Tom says throughout the entire book, she's crazy. Is she really? I don't think so by the end of the book. What's also interesting, though, is that so, so the gaslighting aspect of it was something that I definitely kind of clued into while we were going through this. And then the revelation at the end that that's actually what he's been doing is kind of shocking. But as you go along, you notice these two women who Tom has been dealing with over the last few years, Rachel, who was uh, allowed to be allowed herself to be gaslit. Um, because of her drinking spell, spells, so there was this opportunity to fill in lost time with whatever narrative suited Tom. But then on the other hand, there's Anna. And to a certain extent, you get the impression that she's doing it for herself. You know, you get these long um, paragraphs of her thoughts about how things are going as a mother and how much she enjoys motherhood and how, um, you know, she's going to do this and that while the baby is sleeping. And how amazing her life is, and it's everything she dreamed of. And you, I, I got the impression that she was gaslighting herself, mm -hmm. that she's like filling in this narrative that doesn't exist truthfully to herself, when 
if she was honest, that's not who she is or who she wanted to be or what was actually happening. Well, and she's only honest a couple of times. So Anna right. starts out, and I didn't like Anna from the beginning, and I didn't like yeah. that about myself as I read it because Anna was clearly the victim early on. Now, like I said, I was a homer for Rachel from the beginning, but Anna's introduced, and she is the, the wife of a guy who had homer. a previous marriage. She's, she's got record. a nice little kid, but at the, when, she, when you're introduced to her, she wasn't the homewrecker, right? She's just, you know, the new wife, and, and kind of we go through kind of Rachel's whole story, and here Anna is. I'm just trying to make a life. My husband made me stay at this house. I wish we could move, but yet we can't afford it. Again, a and controlling yep, move on yep. Tom's part. Mm-hmm. And I've got this new baby, and I'm happy, and this crazy woman keeps interrupting my life. And even though she's got a, 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 she should be somebody that's sympathetic for her, I was always suspicious of her. And then you come to find out that she's arguably one of the more terrible characters, right? So she takes an incredible amount of pride in being the other woman and in stealing Tom from Rachel. And, and you don't get that till the end, but all of a sudden there was this really honest part where, I mean, she only has like maybe 10 chapters, but there was this really honest chapter where she like really, like she almost misses being the other woman and mm-hmm. having these sexual trysts. Yep. And he couldn't, he couldn't leave me alone. He just couldn't keep his hands off me. And I had this dominance over Rachel and that really empowered her in a mm-hmm. really weird way. And then you see her do, I think, well, this is what you're talking about, like she, she kind of transfers that to the kid where it's like, well, now the kid is the thing that I'm really, and she's like almost zealotly in a, zealotously like seeking this life and trying to create it over all of the gaslight that might be I'm not unfamiliar with that term but over all the gaslight that might be going on around her right do you think she was on the fence about what to do with Rachel at the end of the book that her last chapter where or one of Rachel's last chapters where it's not clear what Anna's doing or where her loyalties lie when she's still in the house and she's having these conversations with Tom that it's not clear what she's going to do I don't know that she I don't know that this ended the way Anna wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Well, because it definitely felt like for a second there, Anna was willing to let Rachel get bumped off exactly. mm-hmm. right. and just pretend like it yeah. never happened and yep. support Tom. And I think, and this was because I don't like Anna, but I think that <laughs> I don't think she decided what she was going to do until the end. Like, I think she was ready to, I, I think she decided at one point, and this was where I think she fully flipped from, I want to be Tom's you know, lovely lady to, I want to be the mother of this child. But there's this moment where she basically decides, all right, I'm going to do what's best for this kid and for me, and I don't know how that's going to play out. It might be that off goes Rachel and Tom is the provider, or it might be that, nope, Tom's too deadly. And she kind of lets the Rachel-Tom confrontation play out, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't ever really learn, right? Yeah. That was the thing that was kind of unsatisfying to me about the end of the book. Like, I want justice, right? Like, it kind of drove me crazy that they were like, oh, it was self-defense. It was an accident. They never tell the police, like, any of the shit they figured out. Ugh, I was so mad. I assumed that they, like, reported that Tom was the murderer of Megan and... Oh, no, I read that as, like, it was self-defense. I guess he's dead now. We can live our lives. That's how I read it. Oh, how did you guys read I, it? I kind of assume, but maybe they didn't say it. I kind of assume that they would address the fact that, you know, Tom's the killer. I mean, they definitely didn't expressly say it. But, but you're right, def- they didn't. That was my assumption. No, you're right. Well, and I definitely wanted Tom to get caught. Yeah. More than I wanted Tom to get. Like, that was the only part of the book that I felt was a little cliche was that ultimately, you know, Rachel, who's kind of, we, we don't know if she's sane or crazy, and Anna, who we kind of learn is a little crazy. Like, and ultimately it's like, this kind of almost movie scene confrontation and there's a fight and, you know, somebody gets 
hit and is bleeding, and then there's a you know Anna comes in and saves the day or whatever, and it's like that almost felt to me a little like. Well, that was what we kind of expected. Or like it was the easy way out. It was going to be the yeah. ending of this book. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And Instead it's, I of mean, does this book have a movie deal yet? I assume the movie writes it, it does. It does. Yeah. In fact, assume. the cast is go- is excellent. Who is it? So Emily Blunt is playing Rachel, which will be amazing. Nice. Well, will Emily Blunt put on 20 or 30 pounds? No. Or is Emily Blunt? Because no. a guy, if Matt Damon was playing Rachel, Matt Damon would he put would on 30 pounds. And he'd be allowed to because... Yeah. Of the patriarchy, like <laughs> I would have right. gone with the Renee Zellweger for Rachel, but but she's already got. But that's the, the only Jones time that's down. happened. That's yeah, the only time that, that a character's done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Emily Blunt, I like that. Emily Blunt, and then the male leads have been switching around lately, but and this is very exciting. Alice and Janney has signed on to be one of the police officers, oh. which I think will be amazing. Ooh, I like it. I like some Alice. Definitely. So is it going to take place in America or in Britain? Well, so Emily Blunt is British. Yeah, not so you know from her. <laughs> Yeah. From her various movie roles, where she never has a British accent. Well, except Devil Wears Prada, she did there. She did, yeah. I guess. Um, I mean, I I was reading this book because it's so steeped in like suburban London. Like, I don't, I can't imagine them not doing this movie in London. So the, <clears throat> let me ask you about that because that was something that I was kind of comparing and contrasting to Gone Girl when I was reading this. You have to do a shot because you just said Gone Girl. <laughs> 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 That's the drinking game for this podcast, just so everybody knows. I, we got pretty far in before we brought it's it true, up. It's true. It's true. But I think part of um, my compare and contrast with those two books is that with Gone Girl, the setting was so familiar to me um, and for, as being like part of the Midwest and like the blown out suburbs of the I've Midwest. I've never seen or read that, and I always assumed it was Boston simply because Ben Affleck was involved in it. <laughs> no. Where does it actually take place? I don't the same thing. Yeah, that's true. I definitely yeah. thought it was in Boston. Ben Affleck will do that to you. So it actually takes place um, in central Missouri. And okay. I, I grew up in St. Louis, so I had been to a few of the like bizarre places. She's where even a Cardinals fan. <laughs> you don't have to admit that on this podcast. Um, but so I had been to like some of the bizarre places where Amy led Nick on her, her little hunt. Um, but then, by contrast, in this book, I'm reading it along and like getting distracted by the plot. By like, what is this? They have gin and tonic in cans. That sounds amazing. <laughs> You know, I'm getting distracted by all these little British aspects of the book that were keeping me from the <laughs> good plot that was going on. I've had those ones. They had a Jungle Gems. They had really? just like, yeah. a, like a case. We're not like a, like a million cases, for, and they were like like three bucks for a six pack. And yeah, it was, it's not what you want. Well, uh-huh. I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's the type of thing that you'll drink if you're an alcoholic and you're in a train yeah, station and you want to get drunk. Like absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I spent the summer in Europe and I spent about a week in London taking the train from the suburbs into the city. And so I, how many I was gin and tonic cans were one train ride? <laughs> <laughs> were you a three can ride or? No, a like one. Depends on Monday yeah. or Friday. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but like the the so it feel, felt very familiar to me. Like I could picture the train cars. I could picture the little cans of gin and tonic, which are crap but you know they're probably like a pound 50 or something uh, over there and um yeah and the news agent and the off license and whatever it all felt very realistic to me Mm -hmm. so i i really enjoyed that part of it to your point i think it'd be tough to do in america because i pictured you know the very you know english suburban you know kind of like the row houses and then all the backyards being attached to each other like tastefully down with like Mm -hmm. a fence in between and the train going by that would be tough to do in America. 
I just can't picture oh, like a high end place where you could do like, that. There's very little you'd have to change. I mean, I think you'd lose something. I agree. I enjoyed it being in London, but I don't think you'd lose any of the actual story. You could put this in yeah. almost any city I with a train. Yeah. The key yeah, is the train. But I mean, yeah, but, but the daily them, train commuting, I mean, you really would, it would have to be DC or New York, really, to have that like yeah. closeness of the, I guess Boston. If Ben Affleck is involved, like, just go for it. Just do it. <laughs> I would make him Tom. He'd have to be Tom, <laughs> yeah, right? He, he to doesn't Tom. qualify as Scott, yeah. I don't think. No. no, Scott is more Weasley. I don't know. So original stories had Jared Leto playing Scott, which I thought would be an excellent fit. Interesting. Right? That he kind of fits the, like, he can be suave, he can be romancing, but <laughs> he also has kind of this dirty underside. Mm -hmm. I was totally sympathetic to Scott until randomly, and this was totally out of nowhere to me, he sleeps with Rachel out of nowhere. And it's yeah. like, what just happened? And I, th I honestly, for a long time, I was like, he had to have done it. Like, I thought the, the book did a very good job of, I, it, I definitely th felt like all of the characters were guilty at some point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And in fact, at the end, I was convinced it was Anna until the very end, right? Until the, like, you kind of, everybody gets brought up to speed. I was pretty sure it was Scott for a long time, but... You know, I, we haven't talked yet about the therapist. And, like, when Rachel seeks out the therapist, like, I don't know about you guys, but I was just, like, like beating my head against the wall. I was like, Rachel, seriously, girl, I know you want to <laughs> do this. This is a bad idea all around. <laughs> and then she ends up sleeping with the therapist. And Did Rachel sleep with the therapist? Or did didn't just she? No, I think just, just, no Megan. just Megan. Oh, yeah. Megan, my bad. Um, Maybe I misread that or I'm misremembering it, but just any her any well, involvement up, with the therapist. Up, quite frankly, though. getting help from the therapist, right? The therapist ends up being a really good therapist, mm. except yeah. for the fact that he sleeps with one of his patients, That's which a is obviously <laughs> right. makes you a terrible therapist. Right. But he's yeah. up to that point when he slips, he's pretty good at solving problems. Mm -hmm. Like Megan got a little <laughs> bit better underneath it, you know, underneath him, quite literally. Helped and Rachel quite a bit. Rachel got a lot better, yeah. like when she was talking to him and which was really interesting, and I, and I liked, and it was really subtle, but, or not subtle, but I liked that there was just a slight bit of the story that was like, in England, there's enough racism that like, since his, his name is Kamal Abdik, that like, the press was like, oh, must have done it, you know? And that was like a very, you know, people kind of gravitated onto that, and he was gonna be it for a while. And like, because there's also the story of kind of like, Rachel reading this in the news every day and this kind of right. playing out and she's looking for herself to be in the news a little bit. She mm -hmm. kind of wants to and star in the another, thriller. Yeah, and that's another like very British thing. Like the British Isles are so small and they have so many newspapers. It's it's bizarre to me how many daily newspapers they have there and especially of the tabloid variety. I mean, on the train, like you would see, you know, a half dozen crazy newspapers probably with with updates on this story. And I just imagine her like picking through people's trash to like like mm -hmm. whatever stories well, are happening. Pr pretty white girl dies plays pretty well here in Cincinnati. Oh so yeah, most like definitely, <laughs> most definitely. But there in England, I mean, murders are so much rarer than they are in the U.S. Anyways, that's like, a whole separate podcast. Yeah, <laughs> at least this wasn't gun violence. <laughs> yeah, I must say I enjoyed the fact the author used a corkscrew to finish it off. <laughs> I love All that. All that Chardonnay turned yes. out to be handy it in the turned end. out, maybe the alcohol wasn't such a bad thing. Well, <laughs> and how great was it that she's like, is the corkscrew in the same drawer? Yes, I love that. Bingo! <laughs> like, <laughs> uh -huh. So that was pretty great. That is, yeah, it's very poetic. So one of the things that I thought was interesting was, and this gets back to why I think I was early on kind of a homer for Rachel, although you don't really learn this till, till later on, but like the descent of Rachel to where she is. So you get introduced to Rachel and she's just this like 
you don't even know she's out of work at first, but she's overweight and she's stalking her ex-husband and she's clearly kind of lost it. And she's obviously a loon. You know, she's, she's spying on this one couple every day and she's invented names for them. They're Jess and Jason, which I thought was a brilliant name for um, mm-hmm. the, the hot guy in the story. Um, but she's, she's, she's like crazy, right? And so, then you're like, huh. And I liked her from the beginning, but she was definitely like a character that you're not supposed to like. And then about halfway through, you learn that kind of where that comes from, right? So she, um, you know, they were trying to have a kid and they couldn't and she was blaming herself. And, you know, she kind of descends into this, like every drink makes the next drink easier and also more destructive, but she needs the drink to get, th- you know what I'm saying? And so mm-hmm. you kind of see this pattern of like how she felt like she was letting her husband like down. This very un- this very crazy thing becomes understandable in a way. Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. it, I was reading it as like, well, I don't know what I would do in that situation. Like, it doesn't seem that far off from my heart went out to her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's really not. It it's puts her in a very relatable and very I think um, familiar situation for a lot of for a lot of women readers. So I thought it was I thought it was interesting that for all three of these main women characters, they're. Um, either inability to have children or ability to have children or loss of children played such a huge role. Mm-hmm. And normally that feels like such a trope. Like we talked about a little bit, I think maybe before the podcast started, that um, it's so easy to make female characters just empty and mm-hmm. fill them with whatever needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. And this... Whatever Don Draper needs at the time. Whatever Don Draper happens to need. But th- this like quest for motherhood is such an easy thing to kind of drop in there as something that's necessary and... Um, well, but even in a larger sense, this a larger sense, the like loss as a thing that like drives and creates us all, right? So, I mean, on some level, the story starts with chronologically, the story starts with Megan losing her brother when she's very young, mm-hmm. which leads her to this kind of life of wild child kind of you know reinvention. Yeah, reinvention, but also, you know, she clearly goes through, like, you know, kind of this period of sexual awakening where she's kind of running around, and then she ends up with this guy who's a lot older than her and has this kid that she, you know, loses very, very dramatically and very sadly. Um, And in fact, we were talking before the podcast started, you know, there's this character, the redhead, that Rachel keeps bumping into. Yeah, the guy on the train. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's, you know, ends up just being kind of a red herring. The red-headed red herring. There yeah. you go. <laughs> but, uh, but I, for a long time, thought that he was going to end up being the dad, right? And that that ultimate first, you know, that mm. her losing this kid was going to somehow come back and play into where she ends up and what ultimately happens. And that was one of only 275 theories that I had about who actually <laughs> did this as I read the book. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about, uh, in terms of the, the women and the relationship to motherhood as kind of being the driving forces for the narrative of it. Like, that isn't something that would necessarily, like, appeal to me when I'm, like, picking a book. Mm-hmm. But I found it interesting that um, I, I hadn't made that connection, so you said it just now. But, you know, I was wondering, would this movie pass the Bechtel test? That's a great Bechtel question. Bechtel test. I don't even know about so the Bechtel test. So the Bechtel test, Alison Bechtel, who's an amazing cartoonist, she wrote Fun Home, which is now a Broadway musical. I'm halfway through amazing. her cartoon, yeah. Oh, the, the, the memoir that she wrote is amazing. She had this thing called the Bechtel test. So her, her concept is like a movie passes her test if there are two female characters who talk to each other 
about anything other than a man. Oh, yeah. For a period of time. Hmm. And so many movies don't pass the Bechdel test because there's only like one woman or there's two women, but they're just fighting over a man. And I'm not 100% Well, not so many, like 95%. Like it's, it's almost literally never happens that there's two characters that are both female that interact with each other. Not talking about So I've man. heard of the Bechdel test. I just yeah. didn't know it was headed. Yeah, yeah, that's what it's called. And yeah. I'm not sure that this would pass. So Kathy, in her concern. Oh, the, the roommate. Her blatant niceness. Yeah. Could maybe help pass the test because she's just so concerned for Rachel's That's well-being. true. I, I think it would pass because they talk a lot about her situation, her work, trying to get her to feel better about herself and her life. And then if yeah. any of... Rachel's lies about having met Megan were true, then their conversations at the gallery maybe would qualify. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I don't think this passes at all because this is a book that is about, on, on some level, it's, and it's really compelling, but it's about, you know, women's relationship with men and how those relationships can be Well, everyone is orbiting Tom, right? Yep, everyone yep. is orbiting Tom, but I think... It would still pass the Bechdel test because there are a number of conversations that are not about Tom. What They're about, about Rachel. Officer Riley interrogating Rachel. But it's still, mm. I guess it's about Megan. Because that would be about Megan. Right? Yeah. Or about Kamal. Yeah. It's about a murder investigation. About a murder investigation. <laughs> well, but this, this is very yeah. much about relationships, though, right? And so it's about mm. both the relationship that Megan ultimately had with, originally had with her brother. It's about um, the former marriage of Rachel and Tom. It's about Tom and Anna's new marriage. And even when the characters interact, it's all about, like Anna and Megan, or Anna and Rachel wouldn't talk except for Tom. And Megan and Anna wouldn't talk except for... In her mind. Tom. Well... Correct. Well, I mean, no, the, but the reason why Anna and Megan <laughs> ever met was that he brought her in to be the nanny, right? And she oh, only right. made it yeah, like yeah. three days. I was days. thinking of Rachel, sorry. And what was so crazy about it was at the end that it ends up that he brought her in after he was having the affair with her, which I did not pick up on at all. And in fact, I didn't, mm. get, I didn't get in the original telling of the story when, when Megan shows up to be the nanny that mm. that was happening. Yeah. And I thought that was really well written. more like how much Tom was manipulating mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah. That's right. What a creep. Yeah. Seriously. So wait, who's playing him? Is it Ben Affleck or is it somebody else? <laughs> I think no, that's no. all me making that up. It's potentially going to be Chris Evans. Um who I think was Captain America most mm. recently. So like a hunky whatever. A hunky normal guy who doesn't look like a creeper. Mm. Which is kind of how I pictured Tom going throughout the story. Like this poor guy is, you know, like trying to protect his current wife and small child from his crazy drunk ex-wife who just will not let it go. Well, and he even in the retelling of it, he sticks with Rachel through much of her being an alcoholic, right? He, he kind of plays it out and he tries to help her get better and da 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 da. And, and mm -hmm. the first telling of it, and again, much of this is through even Rachel's memory, right? Because right. her memory, we find out later, is so dictated by what he tells her. But he stays with her for a while and it turns out that she's just on a downward spiral that she and has to And he's already starting to get with Anna. Exactly. Mm -hmm. in the and process. so that's what we, but that's what we find out later. So right. I think to your point that, like, you know, for the, for 75% of the book, Tom seems like, you know, kind of the nicest guy in the book, right? He, Plays it out with his wife, but Rachel's just too broken. Moves on to Anna. Anna seems great, you know. And even with Anna, he doesn't move her in until he mm -hmm. finds, or he doesn't break it off with Rachel until he finds out that Anna's pregnant, and then he's got to do the right thing by his mistress and move but her into the house. But then, 
he meets with Rachel in the car. And for me, that was when I was off Tom. I was like, Tom is, I was done with Tom. Even though you kind of learn some things, when he meets with her in the car, rather than just call he's her on the dragging, phone, yeah, he's, dragging he's pulling her out. back. And that's mm-hmm. when I'm like, this guy's a manipulator. And yeah. I lost all of my, because I was definitely on the Anna is the killer up until that point. And then I was like, let's open the file up on Tom. One <laughs> let's just review the facts here. I was a little more suspicious of Tom, actually just because of his, I thought it was so abnormal his level of patience with his crazy ex that that kind of piqued my interest towards him. I was like, that's not normal how patient he is and how, you know, he keeps allowing this to happen without ever really, you know, flying off the handle or putting his foot down, so to speak. Um, so I always, I was always a little suspicious of that. Why is he so patient? What, you know, something else is going on here. And e- I mean, even when Rachel would come back to him with these questions about that Saturday night, he was so cool and so mm-hmm. calm and so dismissive of the whole situation that he, you know, it really, Paula Hawkins gave you a long time to figure out that he was involved and that he was there, but his cool and calm demeanor was just so odd, especially in retrospect. How could you be having these conversations with someone who's telling you that they potentially were there or witnessed you with this dead woman and mm-hmm. you're going to be completely cool about it. If the whole you're thing. a psychopath. If you know that answer. you can perfectly <laughs> manipulate that right. person. When again with the storytelling, like so as we peek back into Megan's life and Megan's story starts so the whole story starts sometime in July, like right around July 4th, which isn't important in England, but that's when the story starts. Um, but then Megan's story starts like a year before when she is, you know, trying to figure, you know, she's with Scott, and she's dealing with all this stuff, and she starts to go to therapy and all this stuff. And then you realize that she's sleeping with her therapist, and there's a couple of chapters of her, him trying to break it off, and her rebelling, and then randomly, and maybe I missed something, but randomly there's a chapter where she's trying to break it off and trying to get back together with somebody. And at the time, I just assumed it was the therapist, but it ends up being Tom, which you don't realize till the end when the kind of reveal happens that Tom and Megan had been an item for a bit, and that she was the new Anna because Tom you know, has to be attractive enough to get these women because he goes from woman to woman to woman, right? And all of the women are described at the time as being quite beautiful. Um, and he just seems to, you know, just flip them over for the next one. And you kind of realize that it was actually Tom and Megan in that chapter that were sleeping together rather than the therapist. And yet Megan was having this crazy reaction to Tom trying to, to leave her and let her go and go back to his wife and kid. Which, again, I thought was just a really... It gets back to I really enjoyed the way the story was told, right? Which is that, you know, it kept you guessing. It played with time and space. It used alcoholism as a way to do that. But it also used just straight storytelling kind of narrative. It makes me wonder how the author, like, wrote this. Like, I imagine that she probably had, like, an entire wall covered in, like, index cards or something. Like, a crazy person. Because I don't know how (laughs) you would keep track of all of these narratives otherwise. I mean, maybe she wrote the three pieces individually. Like, the three narrators, Rachel and Anna and Megan. Maybe she wrote them separately and then chunked them together like a stew. But I I would be very curious to know how she managed to keep everything straight. So it said um, in her bio that she was a journalist, and this is actually her oh. first novel. So I think probably her journalism background is helpful to her in, in piecing together this crime story, right? I mean, we talked about how many different newspapers there are to choose from to, to follow all this coverage and everything else. I mean, maybe, I'm sure nothing this bizarre had happened, but if she has experience watching these crime stories unfold, I mean, that would be pretty instructive on how to do something mm-hmm. like this. 
you're right. It'll be interesting to see as well, like what she does next, right? Like, is this the first book of you know thriller after thriller after thriller, or is this like lightning yeah. in a bottle? Maybe she come up with a good story. Maybe the next book is the guy on the train, and it follows yeah. the redheaded guy who we thought was a red herring. There you go. Who knows? I but would read that. <laughs> but if she's this great, you know, crime journalist, maybe she's got a ton of these. You know, maybe she's John Grisham, and she's been in the courtroom, you know, or on the in the newspaper writing about this stuff. Um, I came across this book. Um, as I always do when I was attempting to enter a bookstore and not buy a book, which is a, a goal I have all the time and a goal I'm terrible at. In fact, I never get the member's card at any bookstore I go to because I know that'll just make me buy more books. <laughs> already, like, it's like, I, don't, I won't buy a crack pipe because then the next thing you know. <laughs> Anyways, but, uh, but I, was, so I was trying to just get a coffee at the booksellers at Fountain Square and get in and out. And uh, I ended up talking to the guy there and he was like, you got to get the girl on the train. And I'm like, I don't need the girl on the train. He's like, oh, it's this summer's Gone Girl. And I was like, well, I haven't read Gone Girl. And he's like, you got to get it anyways. Um, and he said that everybody's talking about it. And he said the whole bookstore can't, can't put it down. And everybody's reading it in a day. So I got it. And it took me a couple months to finally pick it up. But, uh, but I picked it up. And I seriously read it in like two days, which yeah, is for me know. a really fun read. Because it's fun. Because sometimes you get a book you can read in two days and you know it's just garbage. And other times you get a book you can read in two days and you know it's something really good. Mm -hmm. um, you, can't, you, you have to read it in two days because you cannot stop reading it. Right, correct. Right, you yeah. can't have conversations with exactly. people. You can't like take a break at work for lunch without being, you know, you actually put your phone down. It's a whole thing. It's like Donato's pizza. The little bites. If you look, it's like, oh, it's only a page and a half. I want to see what happens next. I ate a whole pizza. Yes, and I just ate a whole pizza. It just keeps coming. That's very true. Well, and it's, so it's going to be a movie. Um, just like um, Gone Girl before it, it's going to be a movie. Um, yeah, and we figured out that Justin Thoreau is supposed to play Tom. I think that's Mr. a good Mr. Jennifer move. Aniston, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And Emily Blunt is going to play Rachel, which I think is brilliant. And I hope that they make it British. I don't know if Justin Thoreau can do a good British accent, though, so well, I so guess we'll see. Important to note that the, the people that are making the movie constant listeners of this podcast. So to you out there yep. that are making this movie, we do think you, we voted, and we think that you should definitely film this in London. Yeah, make keep it, it very British. British, British. Yeah. So uh, yeah. as, as mean a change of pace, we'll make the English actor learn the British accent instead, or we'll make the American actor learn the British accent instead of making the British actor learn the American accent. So we'll do a, we'll do a flip there for old Justin. I mean, the other thing is, if he really has a terrible British accent, Tom's Tom's background is a little bit dodgy anyway. Who they knows who his parents are? He could be an whatever. American. Yeah, it could still work. Maybe he already killed a wife here. That's <gasps> right. Oh. Prequel. <laughs> so that is the girl on the train. Um, so we're going to wrap up as we always do um, on the Twelve Story Podcast with a round of book recommendations. So who would like to start? What? I have so many. Excellent. <laughs> so Grace can go first, and in about an hour, Becky will yes. go. Yes. Yeah, no, I've been trying to get everyone at the Mercantile Library to read the book Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson. Seven Eves. Seven Eves. Like Christmas it's a, Eve. It's a palindrome. It's a palindrome. Oh. It's very meaningful. It is like 900 pages long, and so <laughs> far I've been un unsuccessful in getting anyone to read it, with the exception of my brother, who just flew to the South Pole over the course of like a week, and he read it over the course of that week, and I'm so excited. But, but I would love to have like an actual conversation in person with a bunch of people about Seven Eves because it is amazing. We'll write it down for Podcast 17. Who wrote Seven Eves? Neil Stevenson, and who is, is known for long-ass books. And what's it about? It is... That makes um, it so important to read while you go to the South Pole. Oh, man. So something blows up the moon. And for the first few days, everyone's like, what just blew up the moon? And the moon is now in seven chunks. And then after a few days, this Neil deGrasse Tyson type of character realizes we've been asking the wrong question. 
the question is not what blew up the moon, the question is what happens next. And what he theorizes and what happens is that the moon chunks hit each other, becoming smaller smaller pieces of moon rocks until the entire Earth's atmosphere, uh, the entire sky is white with moon chunks. And then the hard rain starts and Earth is engulfed in fire for like a thousand years. And so the story is told from the point of view of the scientist and then also from like a number of astronauts living in the International Space Station who see it happen from the space station and can never go home again. It is bananas. It covers like 5,000 years of history, and I really want everybody to read it. Future history. Yes. Nice. It's amazing. Wouldn't that also greatly affect just the orbit of the Earth in terms of gravity? And then also, what about the tides? Because isn't that controlled by the moon as well? Yeah, but the Earth is going to be covered in fire, so tides are really like no problem. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is dead. So then people become mole people. Oh, there's so many ways this could go. I How many know. pages are dedicated to after the fires come? Do people live? You got to read the book. I don't know. You have to read Wait the till book. Wait till podcast 17 to tune in and find <laughs> out. I don't know. So All right, Becky, I'll what do you got? I'll follow up with a nonfiction recommendation that actually dovetails with this very nicely. It's called The Sixth Extinction um, from Elizabeth. And I, I, I always want to call her Elizabeth Colbert, but it might be Elizabeth Colbert. <laughs> <laughs> He's um, ruined it for all Colbert. <laughs> he really has. <laughs> So it's a really excellent um, piece of nonfiction science writing, which is outside of my normal uh, my normal reading area. But it follows this um, evolutionary premise that in the course of the Earth's history, there have been five major extinction events, including, for example, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs in various ice ages. And the theory is that uh, at this exact time, we are on the verge of a sixth major extinction event. Um, and it's a really, really interesting piece of science um, and really, really kind of interesting piece of sociology, given all of the climate change debate that's happening right now. So I would highly, highly Plus recommend Plus the rapture, that. which is coming soon. So. And you got to take into account the rapture. You're the uh, second person who's recommended it to me, and I need to read it I now. would highly recommend it. The other thing is I've heard rumors, and at this point I believe they are still rumors, that she may or may not be coming to visit the mercantile sometime in the near future. Rumors. Ooh. Rumors. But read the book so you're prepared. Also join the mercantile library. <laughs> <laughs> so last up, Mike O'Neill. For the record, the mercantile library representative, who's the producer, is nodding his head vigorously. She will be here. <laughs> 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 That's, it's great news. He is shaking his head to We're say really looking no. forward to it. Um, it's lies. So it's wonderful. Well, but now he has to make us all look smart. So yeah. go. F- <laughs> um, I don't know. I've read a lot of good books this year. The one that I thought got a little bit of buzz, but I think more people should read. It's a bit intimidating. It's like, I think, four or 500 pages, and it's so dense, um, is uh, James Elroy's new book, Perfidia. I don't know if you guys have read a bunch of Elroy. Love them. Love them. It's, it's so good. I don't know if you've read all like the L.A. trilogy oh, yeah. and all that stuff. But, um, it's fiction? It's, yes, it's fiction. So James Elroy writes about um, like everything from like the Cuban Missile Crisis on, and he kind of writes about the characters that did the work, right? So somebody had to convince, um, what's his name, to kill Sirhan Kennedy. Sirhan. They had to... Yeah. Get him exactly. Down. So, exactly, and then so there's like a he's got this cast of like ex CIA oh. agents and ex um, FBI guys and just thugs and mafia dudes that are all they're none of them are the leaders, none of them are the guys that are in the paper, but they're all the guys that were like in the hotel room with I'm blanking on the guy that killed Kennedy for some reason, but in, you know that oh, are like Lee in Har- the yeah, yeah that are like Sir in the hotel Sir room Har- with Lee Har- Harvey Oswald the day yeah. before being like here's a gun, 
you know, like those guys had to exist if any of these theories are right. And, yeah. and he writes these 500-page books that are just fantastic. And the characters, he's written, he wrote the L.A. Trilogy, which was three. So he wrote L.A. Confidential. Which L.A. Confidential. Mm. Yeah, That's movie. what you've heard of, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you had those three books from like probably like, I don't know, like 55 to like 70. And then he had a second trilogy with, the, or no, maybe that was the first trilogy. Was Bloods of Rover was, was the last one. Yep. That took you up into like the mid-70s. And um, he now goes back with like a prequel. Okay. And the main character is Dudley Smith. Very good. Dudley in all his glory. Very good. You get Dudley's whole backstory, what he did back over in Ireland. So I'm nerding out about this right now. The two women in the room are looking at us like we're crazy. crazy, Sorry, I'm totally, I'm so rude. I'm like looking at my phone. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah. No, but James (laughs) Elroy, I mean, and talk about (laughs) boiled down war writing. He writes, yeah, it's very much like one page would have, uh, another author would be, you know, probably like, you know, 45 pages. I mean, he could, he's like a literary version of the dame walked into my office. She was wearing a dress that would kill most men, but I'd been drinking whiskey, so I was fine. (laughs) Like, you know, he's that kind of, but he's like a very literary, like modern version of that. But that's definitely what some of his characters are like, right? So, but Perfidia has all the characters kind of at their, at their infancy. You'd recognize all these characters from all these other books. And uh, the problem is it's dense. You almost have to take notes to write it. Yeah, you really do. That's one you do have to go back. And go back. And you actually go on the internet, you go on like Wikipedia, and you're like, wait a second. Was this or guy th- in Bloods of Rover? Or there are like online communities that are like the dissecting all oh, yes. the plots Oh, yes. Oh, he's got like these nerd boys out there that are like put Star Trek guys to shame mm-hmm. in terms of uh, his characters. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so James Elroy Perfidia is, uh, is my recommendation for this year. Uh, outstanding book. And if you, I, yeah, you will absolutely love it. That sounds great. Yeah. So I forgot again to come up with a book, but I came up with one on the spot. Um, and the one I'm going to recommend is called... Um, the Financial Lives of the Poets. Um, and this is, I really like books that um, take modern events and kind of like analyze them, or what does this mean, right? And so there's been this kind of, it took a while, but there's been this like recently a glut of like, you know, Iraq War movies and, you know, post 9-11, what does that mean for the world? And it took a while for that to, I think, be any good. Like I feel like there was some stuff right away that was like, eh. This is about the um, financial collapse that happened in 2007 or 2008. And it's kind of this fascinating book. So um, there is the lead character was um, like a a financial reporter, right? And then he got this crazy idea to to start a blog that was going to be poetry about financial reporting, which is a crazy idea, but he decides to do this, right? And that's kind of the premise. And then the financial crash happens and kind of he loses his job and his money and he kind of craps out. Um, and the whole premise is he starts out by a fateful trip to the 7-Eleven at night, and he becomes a drug dealer, and it's very Breaking <laughs> Bad, but in a much more inept way, in a much shorter span, um, where he tries to, like, um, he gets embroiled in all this crazy stuff, and he's, you know, he's trying to keep his family together, and is, you know, he's getting ready to go bankrupt, and he's got all these problems, and it's a hilarious story. Um, it's by a guy by the name of Jess Walter, and it was his first book as well, but he's gone on to write several other books since then, um, and I think it was nominated for like the National Book Award. It's on several top ten lists for the year it came out, which is like two or three years ago at this point. I read it a couple years ago. But it's really good. It's a, another quick read. It's like maybe 350, 400 pages. Um, but you, you just shoot right through it. And it's just kind of funny, but also kind of poignant. And then it talks about kind of what does it mean for this financial crash to happen? What did it do to our psyche? What did it do to kind of our confidence in the world and, you know, our ability to be breadwinners and to, to be kind of responsible adults? Um, and what happens when you start to lose that? Similar to our girl Rachel in The Girl on the Train. <laughs> So, 
Thank you for joining us today for the 12th story. Uh, we encourage you to subscribe via your preferred podcast app. Um, we're available on iTunes um, and on SoundCloud. And if you're listening, tell your friends to tweet us at the Merc- at, tweet us at at sign Mercantile Lib. Today's podcast was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Special thanks to our guests, Becky Cole, Grace Dobush, and Mike O'Neill. Um, the 12th story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati, and our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at www.mercantilelibrary.com, where you can learn about the library and our upcoming events. Have a great week, and tune in for the next podcast, which will be coming soon.